Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. My guest today, Candace Myers. Hi, Candace. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Lou? I'm doing good. It's a gray, gray day here in New York. Those two happen on occasion. Uh, so I'm very happy to be indoors where it's nice and dry and talking to you. Where are you today? I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas, where I believe we're somewhere around day 60 of triple digit weather. So I'm also happy to be inside. Lovely. Well, um, let's hope the AC keeps working. Uh, we'll try to keep this talk nice and calm. Uh, and cool. And cool. Uh, we're going to be talking about design operations and Candace is um, the, it's, is your old director or leader design operations at uh, Netflix um, studio? Yeah. Head of, so I'm the manager of. of mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're also speaking at a certain upcoming conference on design operations. It's the design ops summit taking place uh, September 8th and 9th. You're speaking on the 9th as part of a, a theme that's uh, basically a visit to the future of design operations. And we're really excited about that theme. Uh, one of the four themes we're covering at the conference. And while I'm talking about the conference, I know you were probably really looking forward to getting on a plane and flying to San Francisco for the in-person -por portion of the conference. But alas, this damn pandemic is getting in the way yet again. So we're only going to be doing it virtually. So I hope the AC is good, especially on September 9th when you're giving your presentation at the summit. And maybe next year, 2023, we'll be able to do our beautiful hybrid approach. But let's talk about what you're going to be talking about. So first of all, um, in looking, I'll, I'll do the, the normal read of your bio because there's a, a couple really interesting things here. Uh, Candace is a design ops leader who started out her career as a lawyer in IP and intellectual property law, I want to come back to that. She's been leading teams since 2013, first at Pinterest. I'm guessing you probably work with Meredith Black and, uh, and then at Meta uh, and is currently leading design operations for the Netflix studio and enterprise tools teams. Uh, let's talk about that really briefly. Um, you know, the, the Netflix studio, the, uh, what is it, the XD studio? That's right. Well, it's it's technically the studio product innovation team, which is an end to end product team that serves the studio. But I am part of XD. OK, so what's the remit for that team? So um, it is all of the tools um, that are created that power all of the content that you see uh, when you turn on Netflix every day. That's awesome. So um, do you feel working in, uh, you know, like the, the streaming video world has been very different than, I got to imagine some ways than working at, uh, at Facebook or Pinterest? Um, it is different in some ways because we are an enterprise tools team, whereas when I was at Pinterest and then at Facebook, um, we really were a direct-to-consumer team. So working in an enterprise team obviously has different challenges. Your audience is very different. The velocity of the work is very different. And um, also, I think at times the quality of the work can manifest very differently um, since you don't need to serve necessarily billions, but potentially thousands or even hundreds. So what does that how does that impact uh, uh, the, the actual operations of design? Does it do you find that it has um, 
does it make it any easier when you have more of a captive audience that's ultimately using the tools or does that actually remove pressure on the design organization and, and maybe not always in a good way? In some ways it's um, simpler because you know exactly who your audience is. Um, they share an at netflix.com email with you. Um, and so they're quite easy to pin down and to connect with and collaborate with. So collaborating with end users is um, something that we really have going for us, a tailwind. Um, headwinds, though, are that we're talking about domains that are deeply, deeply complex, right? So um, post-production tooling, audio dubbing for um, internationalized content. So there's not a ton of designers in the world who know how to design these tools for the people who are actually executing uh, or using the tool to do their jobs. So um, that becomes difficult because we have um, sort of slim pickings in terms of the types of designers you can work with. Um, and obviously the domains go so deep that we do tend to get into these walled gardens mm -hmm. of um, collaboration. And our design team at XD potentially gets a little bit, um, I don't know, potentially a little remote from each other since people are so deep in their domains. So your talk is, uh, let me pull up the title. I really kind of find this interesting. Um, Standardizing Design at Scale. And um, in your talk, if I understand what you're considering addressing, you're going to dig into innovation and design thinking. And really, it sounds like you're, you're looking to unleash a lot of creativity in the service of standards. And I'm trying to wrap my little mind around that because it's, those things sometimes seem to be at odds, right? I mean, you have, um, uh, you know, like a lot of design operations, for example, is looking to bite off maybe some of the less innovative, less creative work that's that's sort of everyday routine to free the designers up and the other members of the team up to to take on the more complex to take on the stuff that may need more bespoke solving and um you know a bit more creativity and and even um true innovation so um how do you square those two things i'm really excited by the idea of actually making them work together well um, thank you. I'm very excited about my talk as well, and I'm still sort of forming it. I'd say it's in um, maybe like a zygote or a fetal stage, so it could change. But um, the ideas I'm really tooling with here are less um, designer designer innovation necessarily. Designers are going to innovate um, that that's like the way the way design ops works has never stopped designers necessarily from innovating. But I do think that we can bring a lot of insight into injecting innovation into our teams via the way we run our teams and the way we position our teams. So um, when I think about what is hampering the average individual contributor on a team from having time to even think about um, what's coming next or how they want to innovate on the product that they're building, I think about the idea of operational overhead or cognitive load that is dragging them down every day. So um, there's a few levers 
that I've identified where I feel like we can really um, free up this idea of cognitive load. Um, the first one is with automation, no code, connecting tools um, that we're already using. If you come from uh, companies similar to the ones that I've worked at, no one's going to tell you what tool to use pretty much ever. Um, and so it becomes really um, a key impact opportunity of design ops to understand how to connect tools in a lightweight way that takes humans out of the, um, out of the equation, including design ops themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where I feel like this idea of no code automatic data visualization of resourcing and progress is really going to project progress is going to really unlock a lot of the operational overhead that our designers and our design ops humans are sort of burdened with every day. Um, the second one really is this idea of what are all of these like low stakes decisions that our designers are making every day that they really don't need to be making. Something that I think about a lot is the idea that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same gray shirt every day. Steve Jobs wears the same black turtleneck every day because they recognize it's not worth their time to decide what outfit they're going to wear that day. What is worth their time is to think about the problems that they're going to solve for the world and their companies. So I want us to really think about what is the equivalent of the gray t-shirt for our design teams, the black turtleneck for our design teams, these really low stakes, high yield decisions that are going to free up cognitive load on, on our design ICs and really create, oper not operational space, innovation space by taking out all of that operational gunk that everyone's dealing with. Oh, okay. So you're looking, I mean, I like how you frame it as re reducing cognitive load. You're, you're trying to make the, the design process more frictionless. Is that a, a fair restating? Yes. And um, I would say more frictionless in a very targeted way um, in, in terms of how companies that I've worked at haven't really unlocked in the past, right? So no one on a design team who's kicking off an initiative, a design initiative, let's say, should ever start with a blank document, right? There are things like principles that we can put into place that just takes so much of the guesswork, uh, the zero to one work out of our day-to-day -day work. And I feel like that's how we're gonna free up time to innovate. Excellent. Um, my mind is swimming here. Um, and for that reason, I wanna take a quick break because uh, I've, I've got to digest it. And I, I have some questions that we're going to return to after the break. So let's stop for a moment. This is Lou Rosenfeld on the Rosenfeld Review. Talk with my guest, Candace Myers. Be right back. Hey, it's Lou. And this is the mid-roll. In other words, in a podcast, uh, there's a time in the middle where we take a break and I do a very, very gentle promotion. This one is for the Design Ops Summit, the 2022 edition. Wow, it's like the fifth or sixth one already. And we've been at this for a number of years. It gets better and better and better. It's going to be taking place September 8th and 9th virtually. Uh, we were hoping to have it in San Francisco as well, but COVID this, COVID that, I'm sick of COVID, but 
We will be doing it virtually. We have a fantastic virtual format. And let me just go over the four themes of this year's Design Ops Summit with you. First theme, that's the first half of the first day, growing successful design ops practices and practitioners, very pragmatic, very practical content. That afternoon for theme two, we're gonna pivot uh, to talking about scaling design organizations. Uh, another really important topic. Second day, uh, theme three is about building an inclusive design ops practice. And we define inclusivity very broadly. Um, you know it covers a number of different areas and it's important for design ops people to be uh, uh, real catalysts in inclusivity. And then finally, the fourth theme, visiting the future of design operations. Uh, you're gonna get a preview of your future. So you definitely wanna be there for that. September 8th through 9th, the Design Ops Summit 2022, all virtual. We'll see you there. I hope so. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Lou Rosenfeld with our guest Candace Myers from Netflix, talking design operations and innovation and much more. So right before the break, my mind was really swimming uh, in a bunch of directions. Uh, the first direction is let's, I, I, I think I'm with you, but let's nail down the concept that you covered in the first part of this interview with maybe a concrete example or two that you think really breathes life into what you're going to be presenting on at the Design Off Summit. Yeah, so um, this idea of freeing up space in order for designers to innovate, I think it is sort of a critical component if we think about um, the, let's just think of it as like a funnel, right? We have opportunities at the very top of the funnel and then opportunities toward the bottom of the funnel to sort of enable innovation. Um, the top of the funnel for me um, is just really this idea of creating space, right? So some of the ways that we've created space um, is what I like to call at Netflix is I like to call um, battling the enemy of the unknown. So um, obviously, as I mentioned, I work on this team that we would think of as a series of six or seven walled gardens. And it's very hard for anyone to see what's happening on the other side of any given wall, um, not for lack of interest, just for, you know, there's a wall. So what we've done is uh, we've used automation and no code to start to connect our tools, most in particular, monday.com. Um, mm -hmm. We've used Zapier to connect um, with sort of some of the other tools that are being used across um, some other functions like user research and content design, specifically, um, I believe, Airtable. Um, and so what we've done there is we have opened up this sort of dashboard that is line of sight, right? So what happens in the human brain when um, you don't know like when you have an unknown is you fill it in with assumptions and experiences in the past. So what my team has been battling for so long is um, PM, Eng, UI Eng, their leadership, product leadership are making all of these assumptions about what the team is doing and the team has all this pressure on them. So I'm like, okay, well, they're just making these assumptions because they don't have line of sight into what's actually going on. So what we've done is we've connected all of the tools like I said, using no code, because we're not about to mandate a single tool. 
And we have connected them in a way where anyone with a Netflix.com email can see what is happening in any of the walled gardens at any given time. The other way we've leveraged automation is to drive it up into like widgeted dashboards, right? So any design leader, any product leader can see all of the different statuses sliced in a very specific and beautiful way that we just didn't used to be able to slice data unless you wanted to spend two days pulling reports and putting it together into a slide deck. So in terms of like freeing up space to equip people to stop answering questions about what's the status of this and really drive and harness like the power of their own time, um, this idea of no code and automation has really, really unlocked us. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, we, we even in a teeny weeny little company like Rosenfeld Media, we find that um, there's a lot of integration opportunities. I mean, we like live and die by Zapier, for example, and you mm -hmm. use some of the other tools you've mentioned. And uh, it, it's really fascinating. It, it's almost like maybe this is like another aspect of design ops that, well, for me at least seems new, but it, it seems obvious now. It's like plumbing for the enterprise, um, which is really pretty awesome if you think about it. But uh, one of the other things that came out of our, our, our mid-break uh, discussion uh, or during the, uh, the, during the commercial, I, 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 my mind was swimming around not just the idea of removing the barriers that desi the designers may have um, uh, to being innovative, but to actually having design ops take a role in equipping designers to be innovative, to, to look at innovation skills as a form of tooling for them. I don't know if that's anything you'll be able to get into in your talk at the Design Ops Summit. I know you only have 25 minutes or so, but is that something you're also looking into or even working on at Netflix? Um, it's something that I would love to do at Netflix. I do think in terms of the maturity of the studio org, uh, the org itself is, isn't quite ready for this level of engagement, but something that I did when I used to run design ops on the community's product at Facebook was really focus on equipping people, not people, designers, well, all people, PMs too, everyone, equipping people with the tools to innovate. And um, the way I did that, or sort of the way I thought through it, was to really understand what are our levers for innovation, right? So you can give anyone Jake Knapp's amazing sprint book and send them away, but does that mean they're actually innovating? <laughs> I'm not so sure. So. Um, the problem that we were facing on the communities products group, which has a multitude of tools over it, um, events, groups, dating, campus. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, five of the six really large products in Facebook app. So what we ended up doing was um, programmatizing a brain trust of our best and brightest innovators across the entire org. It was maybe five or six folks um, we call them architects, right? And we um, basically just put an engagement model around these architects in different sort of ways uh, in terms of like high touch, high leverage, low touch, high leverage, et cetera. 
how they were going to engage with the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. So the the purpose of this brain trust was really to maintain the structural integrity of this product ecosystem and show and teach other more junior designers, people coming up or people who are just less inclined to innovation, what it looks like to build a product with innovation in mind and what it looks like to innovate. Um, so I pulled them together as a cohort, kind of like a tiger team, but forever. Um, we put some boundaries around their time and some engagement models in place, ensuring that there was always time for them to whip something up for Mark, for instance, or there was always time for them to sit and consult with a junior IC who, you know, was maybe an intern last year and just wanted to understand how something worked. So it's almost like a stewardship, a little bit of an ongoing education. um, But what it really does is it gives us true leverage. We have all these amazing people who are doing this incredible work. I mean, these are unicorns of the industry. Mm And we have given, we've democratized their information, right? We've given the entire team access to them. Um, and that was really such a linchpin on our team as we were all asked to continue to develop um, the quality, craft, and ultimately impact of our products together in tandem. Wow. And uh, it sounds like, you know, that what I really resonate what really resonates for me is the educational aspects there. And I think that fits very much with the trend that certainly I'm seeing, maybe you are as well about uh, the educational role of design ops professionals. I mean, there's the, you know, kind of obvious stuff like, uh, well, we need to get some uh, training in for our team on X, let's go find someone. But then I think what you're talking about is a lot more nuanced and uh, a bit more integrated into what design ops people are doing. Well, well, thanks for sharing that with us. I, I'm going to put you on the spot now, though. I'm going to ask you something personal because your background is so interesting to me. As I mentioned earlier, the, the, the law background, the specialization in intellectual property, does it connect to what you're doing now? Has it helped you or is it totally irrelevant and you just sort of made a huge you know, left turn or right turn or whatever, and here you are? Um, well, thank you for the question. I, I get it um, quite a bit from, I think, folks who are really interested in how to pivot careers and what it looks like to pivot careers. So i um, happy to answer it. I, I think that in some ways it was intentional and in other ways it, it was really unintentional. Mm-hmm. So um, the work I was doing was intellectual property, soft IP, right? So copyright, um, trademark work, biz dev work for creatives, all of all of that type of stuff. Um, and I realized that what was always the best part of my day was just working with the creative themselves, right? It wasn't working with other lawyers. It certainly wasn't researching case law or filing copyrights with the USPTO. Those things are so boring. They're so banal. Um, and of course, it wasn't writing nasty grams and, you know, sort of like, having adversarial conversations with people. So um, I like to meet with people and build and solve problems in a collaborative way. So um, at the time that I started practicing law, there was all of these, it was sort of right before design had gone in-house, products and and Mm -hmm. brand design had gone in-house in tech in San Francisco and um, Silicon Valley at at writ large, I guess. And um, 
there was all these little studios popping up and they were just, they needed somebody who had some sort of business acumen and some sort of legal acumen. And so um, when I graduated from law school, it wasn't a great time. The economy was kind of terrible. So I just put my shingle out, as they say, and um, started making connections in the design community. And my husband's also a designer. So that helped me get clients and understand the needs of designers. And from there, I I just started working with with um, uh, a lot of little a lot of little um, design agencies who were doing all different types of work. Um, after doing that for a couple years, I decided, you know, I would really like health insurance. That would be something that would be wonderful. And so um, I decided to pivot a little bit to be more of like a studio manager, step away from law. I knew law would always be there. Uh, I got hired at this um, little B2B or SaaS um, agency mm-hmm. called Compare Networks. Um, I believe this must have been what, <clears throat> maybe 2011. Um, and we used to make iPad apps, B2B iPad apps for the first iPad. Like we're talking, everything was brand new. Those things were like doorstops. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's really where I cut my chops um, in product design um, and sort of agency life. Um, and they were amazing to take a chance on me. But uh, they, do you ever find that um, uh, it, it, since that time, do people look at you and say, what are you doing here? I, I mean, why aren't you practicing law? Why, uh, or do they say, oh, interesting. You might have some special uh, insight into rules and, and how policy works and how that might help us do what we need to do. Well, I'll be brutally honest and tell you where being a former lawyer serves you the most. Um, performance review time is really a great mm. time to understand how to write um, a highly effective, um, simple, short advocacy document for yourself, for the people who report to you. Um, and then obviously, when requesting headcount, um, you know, all of that legal writing and persuasive writing certainly never hurts. Um, I think people really understand the power of what like what it is to be integrated into the creative field without being a creative. And so I don't get a lot of questions about why don't you practice law anymore? Um, But I do get a lot of unsolicited uh, requests for legal advice. So that's always fun. Uh, party trick yeah i'm sure there's a lot of those that you just roll your eyes and just smile and <laughs> hope they hope they drop it or you know hire someone who's actually a divorce attorney or whatever <laughs> whatever they be needing oh. help with well candace thank you so much um i do have one last question for you in rosenfeld review tradition i like to i ask my guests if they have um a little gift of um goodness, whether it's a, a good piece of content, a book, an article, or, or a podcast, or a person that uh, you think our listeners should know about, what do you have for us? Well, thank you for asking. I um, love, 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 well, I love podcasts in general, so thank you for having me. Thanks for being but, here. Um, the podcast I appreciate the most, it comes out Mondays and Fridays, give or take, is called Pivot Podcast. It's with Kara Swisher, who um, is a, a legendary New York Times reporter, and Scott Galloway, who is a legendary jerk, as well as a brand genius, as well as a fit financial and, and tech and sort of like 
understands the larger global piece of business. And the, the reason I always tell my team or my fellow DPM folk to listen to this is because it ties together exactly what we have to tie together every day in our jobs. It ties together human psychology and intent. It ties together the business climate. What are you working in? What needs to change? Why are you here? And it ties together sort of this idea of like brand being probably the most highly leverageable um, thing that you can have in, in life, right? Whether it's your own personal brand or your company's brand. And when I think about something that I use every day, it's all three of those, right? Um, what's the business use case for this work? What are the, what are the humans behind the work need? And how am I going to position this work to be great? Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I've been loving Gara Swisher's writing forever. And you've given me that final push um, to go ahead and start listening to her and and, and the jerk as well. <laughs> he, he's hilarious. He's, he's got the spicy taste, but honestly, um, he's one of those people who's so smart when he makes a joke. It's um, 10 times funnier. Fantastic. Well... Candace Myers, thanks so much for joining us on the Rosenfeld Review. Candace Myers will be presenting at the Design Ops Summit, which takes place September 8th through 9th, virtually uh, talking about the uh, interesting uh, and uh, pretty broad topic uh, of standardizing design at scale. I have a feeling you could give three or four talks at the conference if we gave you enough time. Uh, really looking forward to it. Thanks again, uh, Candace Myers. Uh, head of design ops at Netflix studio. So you probably are familiar with her work, whether or not you realized it before. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Lou. Thank you for having me. Such an honor. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.